from the shining studios of WLVT in the Christmas city of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. It's time for another enduring hour of chemical-free horticultural hijinks. You bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Are your plants acting like spring chickens, even though we're approaching Halloween? Are your azaleas and rhododendrons bursting into bloom? Are your trees waking up? Is your forsythia suddenly yellow again instead of green? Well, on today's show, we'll discuss why so many of our plants don't want to go to bed and instead want to stay up and play. Plus, we'll be taking an extra heap and helping of your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and brazenly bombastic beusifications. That's right, beusifications. Look it up, kids. So pull up a chair, cats and kittens, because it starts right here, right there. Welcome to another exciting episode of You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39, beautiful WLVT in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, are your plants misbehaving, suddenly bursting into bloom when you want them to go to bed? We'll talk about this phenomenon that is affecting the entire East Coast and Mid-Atlantic states and what we gardeners should or shouldn't do about it. But now it's time to take lots of your fabulous phone calls at 833-PBS-WLVT, which numerically turns out to be 833-727-9588. Raymond, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Garden. Yes. Hi, Mike. Hi, Raymond. Those short naps are great, aren't they, man? <laughs> yes, sir. How are you doing? My call. Thank you for making it, Raymond. Where are you? I am in Landenburg, Pennsylvania, southern Chester County, just about in Delaware, but not quite. Oh, okay. That's a beautiful area out there. What can we do you for, sir? Well, um, on my, I have about a half an acre, a little over half acre, and in the back, it's wooded between my property and the property behind, and there are... Look, there are uh, six to eight ash trees, which are just very, I mean, they're probably, they're, they're taller than my three-story house. They're huge. Uh, I had a guy out, uh, a certified arborist out, to give me an opinion about all the trees on my lot. And he said, I, I currently do not have any emerald ash borer beetles. Whoa. But they're not far. Good for you, man. Well... Yes. So my question, the reason I'm calling is, he offered a systemic treatment in order to prevent them, but it sounded like he wasn't all that optimistic about saving them in the long run. And I wanted to find out your opinion on, is it worth it? Is it worth my money, time, effort to get a guy out here to try to save these trees? Or is this an inevitable thing that these things are going to get them? You're Noah's Ark, baby. If, they, if the question was, could you save the last grove of American elms so that science would have access to their DNA, would you have saved the last grove of the American chestnut tree before that got wiped out? We're in a similar situation. Ash trees are incredibly valuable, doubly to me because I'm a confirmed baseball fan. Uh, win or lose, I die with the Phillies, you know. Um, yeah. And everybody who watches baseball has noticed a dramatic increase in the shattering of bats. Well, that's because this lousy borer, this insect from overseas, has been infesting ash trees. Um, back in the day, it was hickory, and now ash is the preferred hardwood uh, for high-end baseball bats. But ash is getting hard. Slugger, right? Yep. Ash is getting hard to find. They've been experimenting with hardwood maples, and you see the result. It's like a grenade went off in that bat. So, and you think of all the other applications of the trees, and I don't know that we can stand to lose another entire species like this. So everyone who has ash trees that are not yet infested with the borer, I would actually suggest that they have the treatments done despite them being chemical treatments and me making very few exceptions for this, uh, for two reasons. First, 
we need to try to keep some of these trees alive. Without a large number of untreated trees, the ash borer, which is a very specific feeding insect, should eventually die out. If we can keep hundreds, maybe thousands of trees treated and the ash borer can't survive being in them, eventually that lousy beetle should die off and become extinct over here again. Um, the other reason is once the tree is infested, it needs to be cut down. Do you have any idea what it takes to take down? How big are your trees? Mature trees cost thousands of dollars a piece um, to remove from properties. Oh, they're tall. Yeah. They're very tall. So there are two options here for treatment. Both of them are chemicals, um, but the chemicals are not sprayed in the environment. And, and quite honestly, um, there is no other option right now. So he might be talking about a systemic root treatment. I would, I, I've been speaking at symposiums where this topic has come up. And my understanding is the systemic treatment will work. It'll take this poison up into every part of the tree. Um, and the beetles will die when they try, even when they try to eat the canopy of the tree. The emerald ash borer, uh, the young ones start up at the very top of an ash tree. They feed on the leaves. Then they come down and burrow into the bark to have their uh, young ones. And it is the colonies they make, the galleries inside the tree, that eventually cut off uh, the flow of nutrients back and forth within the tree. So a true systemic will kill them before they can even come down on the tree. But every part of the tree is then toxic, and you don't want to harm bees who may be attracted to the flowers in the spring. There is another treatment. Um, I shouldn't talk about individual companies, but I know for a fact that they have pioneered this, the Bartlett expert tree company, who are great friends of mine at the Philadelphia Flower Show. They support the Flower Show uh, tremendously. I've spoken at their symposiums when they've discussed a gentler treatment, which is actually into the bark of the tree itself, almost like a human injection. And that protects that part of the tree where the borers do the most damage. And I don't believe it gets up into the flowers. If it does, it's at a very low rate. So that's the kind of treatment I would urge you to seek out. It's been a while since I was at one of these symposiums, but it's my memory, haha, understanding that the treatments are a little bit expensive, but they last for three to five years. So we're not talking about something you'd have to do every year. Um, I would compare the treatments. I would get a number of different bids. I would make sure the people who do the work are certified six times sideways. Um, but in, in terms of just common sense, you don't have any choice. You'd have to take out a second mortgage to have these trees taken down, and then you'd lose all that shade. You'd lose all that beauty, and we as a planet would lose even more of an important species. So again, even though it's a chemical treatment, you know, I, I, so, sometimes I just have to do what's called common sense pest control. And I would urge you to get the treatment that works the best, that has the least impact on the environment. But yes, surprisingly, I would urge you to get the treatment. Okay, so I have a chance of saving these trees. Oh, absolutely. If you keep up with the treatments, and I think the maximum you'd have to do is every three years, yeah, they'll, they'll be fine. And you may have some of the few ash tree standings. You'll be a hero when uh, the beetle is gone and they have to start reproducing these trees again. That'd be good. I mean, I, I grew up, uh, the one tree on my, actually there were two trees, and one of the trees on my parents' property was this ash tree that was just enormous. It was probably eight feet, the trunk was eight feet across, uh -huh. and it was just, uh, incredible. It was so, just incredible. So you know how they say all things happen for a reason. That childhood love, you get a chance to act on it now and give that love back. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thank you, man. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. Take care. 833-PBS-WLVT. Hmm. Wait a minute. That's not a number. Those are the letters. The number to call is 833-727-9588. Carol, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. 
Thank you, Mike. Thank you for taking my call. Well, thank you for making it, Carol. How you doing? Just fine. And where is Carol Fine? Carol is fine in Califine, New Jersey, northern Hunterdon County. Okay. Near Clinton? Yes. Okay. There's a fat. What's the inn there? There's a fabulous inn that serves the most delicious food. That's right. That's a Clinton Point Inn. Yeah. yeah oh, Inn. you know, Clinton, I never. It's Clinton House. Excuse me. Clinton, Clinton House. House. Yes, yes. I used to go to the railroad car up on next to uh, 78. But when yes. I when I found the, uh, the Clinton House, I never looked back. <laughs> Seriously, great place. All right, Carol. We didn't talk about, we, you didn't come here to talk about restaurants. What's up? Well, I called uh, about the Caterpillar conversation you had a couple of weeks ago with Pat from Princeton. And she was calling about uh, the life on her milkweed plant. She was talking about oleander aphids. And then she mentioned, but she did get caterpillars and they were black and orange. And you congratulated her on having monarchs. But unfortunately, those aren't monarchs. They're wah, a native insect, wah. that's for sure. <laughs> they're, they're a native insect for sure, but it's the milkweed tussock moth that she has. Um, when people talk about caterpillars, I always ask them, is it hairy, spiny, or smooth? And her little tussock moth caterpillars would have been very hairy. To me, they always look like little Pekingese dogs when they're undulating along a flat surface. Um, now, but they, they show up in herds almost, on a milkweed plant. Huh. So it's not just the monarchs that feed on milkweed. There Are there any other um, caterpillars? No, not as far as I know caterpillars. There are other insects. Mm -hmm. Those are the two caterpillars. But the I don't know that it's a problem, but if you're trying to raise monarch caterpillars, the tussock moth mother lays her eggs in large clusters. And when they all hatch, as I said, it's like a little herd of caterpillars and they can decimate a milkweed plant. So depending on your supply of milkweed, and mine at my house is not um, large, so I have to kind of watch my population. But um, I, So I scraped the eggs off one of my plants this year because I, I have enough milkweed in the area that I'm sure tusk moths are all over the place. They're cute little caterpillars, but boy, can they eat. So I needed the milkweed to feed my monarch caterpillars. I'm waiting for chrysalis. 17 and 18 to eclose. They're still green, so I've told the girls, you know, last flight's leaving pretty soon. So <laughs> yeah, well, luckily with global warming, they have flights later in the season now. <laughs> um, yeah, we have had callers uh, who have, to, to me, laughingly complained that their uh, milkweed was eaten to the ground, and I said, good, that's what it's there for. I never realized that there was another caterpillar barging in uh, to get this free lunch. Now, you say it's the tussocks moth. Tussock? Tussock. Yeah, it's the milkweed tussock moth. And, uh, what, what, and what does the moth look like? Is it anything? The, the, moth, the moth is um, sort of pretty. It sort of has brownish wings and I think sort of a, a light orange body. It's not terrifically colorful. And as with most moths, you probably wouldn't even notice it. And it's, you know, not around a lot. So you'd, you'd have to really be out there scouting to uh, encounter it. Is, but the, the is, uh, caterpillars are easy to spot. Yeah. Um, now, I know the spiny caterpillars uh, sting like wasps. Um, right. Does this hairy caterpillar affect you if you rub your hands on it? Well, to tell you the truth, I've never really picked it up because, like you, I know the spiny business you know, can cause problems. And I did uh, accidentally brush up against the saddleback caterpillar. That's exactly the one. And wow. That's exactly the one I was thinking of. People say it's like a yellow jacket sting. Yeah. And uh, it lasted, this, this irritation to my skin only lasted about an hour, so it wasn't terrible. Okay. Um, but, but this is. I saw a lot of those this year for some reason. This is huge. I mean, so many people are growing. Uh, milkweed early in the season, and then Mexican sunflower later in the season to try to help the monarch population. And I think most people, like me, would figure if the milkweed was all eaten, they had done their job. But now you're saying, look out for this uh, for this invader who isn't. Well, he's not. He's not an invader. We have to be careful because he is a native insect. Mm -hmm. So we just have to um, kind of decide 
you know, if you if you need it to, because you're actually um, raising monarchs inside. Um, I mean, I've been out in the morning in my nightgown with my pen knife trying to get milkweed because my caterpillars ate everything overnight right. in the cage. Um, but, yeah, so I, I'm just managing your milkweed crop like anything else. Are you a member of Monarch Watch? No, I'm not. So you're just no. a private individual having fun releasing monarchs? Yes, exactly. Oh. And I have a, another friend who's released many more than I have. As I said, I've done 18 this year. She does well over 100 every year. Oh, that's great. Yes. Oh, oh, <laughs> are, well, thank you. First of all, thank you for doing that. Thank you for taking an active hand in preserving the monarch population. And thank you for correcting me. When I became the editor of Organic Gardening Magazine, I always felt like I knew more about gardening and pests than half of the audience, and the other half knew more than me, and that made me the perfect person to be in the middle. And nothing makes me happier than when somebody like you calls in and sets me straight and tells a great story. Well, I want to thank you for encouraging all of us to call you to ask questions. Uh, that makes my day, too. I'm hearing everybody else's questions because we all learn from that. All right. Well, thank you, Carol, and good luck with your monarchs. Thank you, Mike, and welcome to Bethlehem. All right. My pleasure so far. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 1-833-PBS-WLVT. That's 833-727-9588. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I'm going to travel down south to speak about the importance of horticultural therapy when I appear to benefit for a very special healing garden on Tuesday, October 23rd at 5 o'clock at the beautiful Country Club of North Carolina in Pinehurst. I better dress nice. But don't go checking the event section of our website for all the details just yet because we'll be right back with the reason your plants don't want to go to bed this fall and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT in beautiful Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from beautiful PBS 39. That's WLVT in the Christmas city of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, are your azaleas in bloom? Is your forthithia, 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 is that big shrub outside your house turning yellow? We'll tell you why that's happening and what you can or shouldn't do about it. In the meantime, more of your fabulous phone calls at 1-833-727-9588. Katie, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Hello, Katie. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I am just ducky, thank you for asking. Where is Katie great? Uh, we are in Louisville, Kentucky. Not Louisville. Louisville. Not Louisville. L not Louisville, right? Louisville. Right. Yes, you got it. <laughs> like, like, like Baton Rouge. All right. What can we do for Katie in Kentucky? You know, we get, we're getting a lot of alliteration. We had Pam in Princeton, Katie in Kentucky. You know, I kind of like that. Just one of those days, I guess. Yep. Anyway, I'm kind of a novice gardener. Um, I recently purchased my first home, um, and I planted some bare root peony. I think that's what they're called. Yes, peonies. Um, um, last fall. And they started to come up this spring very slowly, um, but I read that they will come up slowly. So they didn't really grow a whole lot, um, but I started to notice some spots on them pretty early in the summer. So I think it was before they should have been dying back. And I was just kind of wondering if you could help me troubleshoot because I really, really am looking forward to having some beautiful stems. Oh, you will. You will. Um, yes, peonies. Uh, they go in the ground for the first couple of years. They spend their life force uh, growing nice big leaves. The big leaves feed solar energy to the root underneath. And then after a couple of years, the plant has the strength to produce those big flowers, uh, which, by the way, are the best flowers for cutting and bringing indoors if you say you want your peonies flowers for an event like two months later. They are one of the few blooms that you can cut 
bring inside, just wrap them loosely in slightly damp um, paper towels, put them in the fridge, and they won't change for months. Yeah, so you know, sometimes people want them for a wedding or something. These are some these are plants you can store. Now you say you had spots on yours. Now where where we live here in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, all up and down the East Coast, the uh, mid-Atlantic states, we had torrential rains. It was raining all the time. And a couple of days it wasn't raining, it was like hundred and six. So we watched a lot of TV. Um, yeah, we had similar weather here. It was a very wet, humid summer. Right. Now, uh, are they planted out in the open? They're getting good sun? Are they partial? They are. They're getting really good full sun. Um, I, I've been listening to you. Um, when I discovered you, I like listened to a ton of podcasts, hours upon hours, and just dove in. <laughs> and I've learned a lot. And I did have mulch up around the stems, um, wood, wood chip mulch. And um, I noticed when I pulled it back that one of the stems was kind of, it looked like it had been a little damaged from that. Yeah, exactly. One of the things, uh, this mulch is just a marketing thing. It should never be used in horticulture. And especially in a wet year like that, what happened is the mulch didn't allow the stems to dry out. And then they can rot where they enter the ground. But luckily, that root you have in the ground is super strong. Now, you've pulled back the mulch, right? Right. Yeah, be careful if you still have it around that it's not touching the stems or the trunk of any plant out there. Um, all of the plantings you see with wood mulch are wrong. They're just dead wrong. But people imitate it, and now, you know, we've got a landscaper's dream. All these plants are going to be dead in three years and need to be replaced. But you've done no permanent damage to the plant. The spots you saw could have either been uh, spores from the wood mulch, which attracts fungal organisms in the environment. And they, they are known to shoot spores that cause things like tar spot on plants. Also, plants that get watered too much from above where their leaves stay wet, they just develop a condition called leaf spot, uh, which doesn't harm the plant. It's totally temporary. You get a nice year, you get a nice year next year where the rains are not as torrential and there shouldn't be any problem. If you're going to feed the plant, just spread an inch of compost around it. But again, even with the compost, you don't want to touch the stems coming out of the ground. Don't feed it any kind of chemical fertilizer. Keep that wood mulch away from it. And come on, you're a first-year gardener. You didn't kill it. You have done 90% of the job, not undeath, not death. That is the ultimate goal of any gardener. You get to the end of the season and you didn't kill the plants and you can give yourself a parade down Broad Street. Right. So how long do you think I can expect to see blooms? Uh, I would say three years. Three years. Okay. Yeah, but it's well worth the wait. I have a peony out by my, uh, actually the road in front of our house, a terrible place, but it was planted long before I bought the house, which was 35 years ago. And this sucker not only comes up every year, it dropped enough seed nearby that it developed a sport. I now have a peony of a different color growing next to the original one. Mm, nice. So they Will you recommend any cages or any staking for them as they get bigger? When the uh, Not for the stems themselves. What I do is I roll some uh, welded wire up into a cage-like size, um, into a cylinder, and then once the flowers are formed, I just slide that underneath and try to make it unobtrusive so the flowers are up in the air and not hitting the ground. Oh, I like that idea. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. All right. Good luck, Katie, in Kentucky. Okay. All right. Our number, 833-PBS-WLVT. Those aren't numbers. Our numbers are 833 833- 727-9588. Jacob, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Hello, Jake. How you doing, man? I'm doing superb. How are you? I am just ducky, thank you. Where is Jacob Super? Where am I? Yes. We are in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Okay, the questions get harder after this, Jake. Now, your voice just dropped down low. Can you come back closer to the phone? Oh, yeah, right here. Okay. All right. What can we do for you, Jake? Well, Mike, 
I am the president of our environmental club at our school, and we're looking to make a greenhouse. And I know it's a big project. So I suppose I just need some tips kind of like how to make a greenhouse, what kind of fruits, vegetables kind of flourish in this kind of environment. And depending on like latitude and longitude. No, no, forget that. Forget that. Um, (laughs) No, the, the rules of greenhouse are pure, simple physics. Um, you can't use it in the summer where you are because it gets too hot. The summertime, you either open it up all the way so it's not a death trap, or you close it up tight if you had disease or insect issues, and then it does become a death trap, but a good one, a nice death trap. Now, you can't use it in the dead of winter either unless the greenhouse is attached to a building where heat can pass between the two things, or the greenhouse is separately heated. Most greenhouses are heated using propane heaters. Um, But this idyllic thing of, oh, I can grow orange trees there in the the wintertime, yes, you can if you spend a small fortune uh, to keep it warm, or you don't care that the trees look dead at the end of spring. They're still alive enough to take outside. Now, you have a particular problem. Um, as we've mentioned in the show, I am a frequent visitor to the Oklahoma City area and absolutely love it and love the people. Um, but my face is five times older than it should be thanks to your wind, Jacob. We do have quite a bit of wind. Yeah, yeah. The Oklahoma song was not kidding about the wind whipping down from the plains, oh, man. So that takes a uh, that adds a big expense to you. Many greenhouses today, or actually hoop houses, um, are, are made of plastic stretched over metal runners. How long do you mm-hmm. think the plastic would, would last in a windstorm in Oklahoma, Jake? Three days? Come on. Three, two, perhaps. Yeah. So you are looking at either a true glass house or some form of hard polycarbonate plastic both of which are, are widely available. Um, but again, now, now you keep increasing the price. I don't know how much of a budget you have here. Yeah, yeah we have about, well, $1,500 is what we have right now, but we're going to have to raise a little bit more money for that. You think? Um, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. One thing I also looked into um, of the different types of designs of greenhouse, there was something I came across, a geodesic dome. It was more just like uh, triangles connected, like making about a half sphere over the ground. Okay, you gotta you, you gotta be careful. I think you're looking at, at wish fulfillment things. A geodesic dome um, f- to allow for full use of the sides of the greenhouse would have to be incredibly high, um, and ah. and you want a structure that's going to be as low to the ground as possible again to protect you from the winds. Um, mm-hmm. The things you're looking at in in fairy tale catalogs uh, were not designed for your situation. They were designed for a climate where humans were supposed to live, Jake. Um, 1500 isn't even going to cover the slab that you would need to have created uh, to give it a solid structure underneath. Now, do you have any big areas inside this? What do you want to do with the greenhouse? Um. The greenhouse is more of a project to um, partly be able to grow like fruits and vegetables to possibly incorporate that into the kitchen or into the cafeteria and also for projects um, like biology projects for any of the classes, any of the science classes and stuff like that. Okay, so here's I'm, I'm just going to smash your dreams out the window. Um, Thank you. The, you could grow food for the kitchen outside during the summer which is the normal season. But of course, that's the season where the kids are out of school, especially in areas like Oklahoma, where the school year was designed to have the kids available to help on the nearby farms. Um, Mm -hmm. That's why the school vacation is timed the way it is. So you're not going to have anybody there to grow over the summer or, or to watch over that. And it would cost a small fortune. You'd be paying in, in terms of labor and actual money, you'd be paying 10 times what you could get um, a local farmer to grow those tomatoes for you. 
But one thing you can do is if you get over the idea of a greenhouse, if you have a big unused area in the school, you can go out and spend that 1500 on high intensity lights, nice boxes and nice potting soil, a perlite, things like that. And you could turn that room into a seed starting class where let's say February or March, you'd get everything together. You'd start planting tomato and pepper and eggplant and cucumber seeds and you would raise them with the lights. You need the intensity of these lights. Don't forget, in the wintertime, you're getting the lowest levels of lumens possible even from the sky. Many professional greenhouses have artificial light inside. So I don't see any advantage for you to be outside. Um, even then, you can have a freeze and lose all these things. But if it's inside the building, you're using free heat. So inside the building, you know, it can be a real sunny room where once the once the days get longer, you know, you can pull up the shades, let that light come in. Nothing like natural light, but you're going to rely on artificial lights kept down close. And then at the end of the school year or even before the end of the school year, you can have a plant sale and sell all these pepper starts, tomato starts, all these different plants, herbs. Um to the parents of your school children, and then that money gets rolled back into the indoor greenhouse, you get a little fancier, you do more and more, but now you're not paying a fortune to battle the seasons. Now that, that's something that I really like to hear right there. Yeah. And also the, the skill of seed starting is much more difficult than the skill of gardening. So the kids would learn more, and every kid who does this would always then go on forever to start their own seeds. They would have one of the greatest skills in all of horticulture. Well, that is quite lovely. Thank you. All right. Good luck to you, sir. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. 1-833-PBS-WLVT. That's 833-727-9588. Sharon, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, well, thank I have you. A question. Thank you for being had, Sharon. Yeah. <laughs> I have a big question. Um, it, it, the topic is zucchinis. Um, I I have a, a little garden in my backyard, and I have one year was very productive with zucchini, and then for the past two years, just it just does nothing. It dies. I plant it. I don't overwater. It's in a nice sunny spot, but not too much sun. It begins to flower. I get all excited. And then as soon as it gets done flowering, it just, nothing grows off the flower and then it just dies. Okay. So um, where is your garden, Cher? Um, in placement in regards to the sun? No. Where do you live? Oh, I live, oh, in Piscataway, New Jersey. Piscataway, entry to New York City. Okay, uh, uh, but uh, but you do have nice sun. Are you growing in flat ground or raised beds? Uh, raised beds, actually. Excellent, so, excellent. Decent sun? Yep, decent sun, organic soil. Um, I fertilize, but not too much. I water, but not too much. Um, and, <laughs> I am know, so... <laughs> my father was a homicide detective, and whenever people tell me they water and fertilize correctly, I go, okay, I got, I got the killer. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Now, this is the first year you had a reluctant zucchini? Yeah. Okay. Actually, yeah. So there's nothing wrong with that um, because this year where you live, you got a hellish amount of rain. It's not, it wasn't just horrendous. It was ridiculous. Um, zucchini is a funny plant. It has this reputation of putting on more fruits than a small country could ever use. And they have uh, the ability to hide until they become the size of a baseball bat. You never get edible ones, but you get ones that would be a lot of fun if you could slide them unknown into a major league game. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I'm going to travel down south to speak about the importance of horticultural therapy when I appear to benefit for a very special healing garden on Tuesday, October 23rd at 5 o'clock at the beautiful Country Club of North Carolina in Pinehurst. I better dress nice. But don't go checking the event section of our website for all the details just yet. 
because we'll be right back with the reason your plants don't want to go to bed this fall and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT in beautiful Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Get him, Doc. Get him. Oh, hi. Are we back? Yes. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the beautiful studios of WLVT in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Messed up. Oh, I'm on the other side. Messed up my hair. Oh, my hair is all messed up. Don't worry about that because we are in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a few minutes, we'll get to the question of the week where we will discuss why all of our plants have gone bat poop crazy, putting out sprouts when they should be going to sleep. In the meantime, a couple more of your fabulous phone calls. What's my number? I forget my number. It's too soon here. I don't know what my number is anymore. 1-833-PBS-WLVT, that's 833-727-9588. So zucchini is very strange in that in the beginning of its plant's life, it will flower profusely, but they are all male flowers. Um, This is even in a great season. Zucchini takes... uh, quite a while, maybe a month or more after the first flowers appear to produce its first female flower. And you can tell the difference because underneath the flower of a male flower is straight and there's a little bulge at the base of the flower on a female flower. It would behoove you if you see that little bulge under a flower to get a little paintbrush and go around to a couple of the male flowers get some pollen from them, and dust them on the female flowers. So, you know, and uh, if, you, if you start to get a lot of female flowers, you only need to leave two or three men out there. They can take care of everything else. Um, <laughs> That's good to but, know. But one of the things that happens is when you do pull off those flowers and bring them indoors to enjoy them, it stimulates the plant to produce more flowers which could actually in turn stimulate the plant to produce its first female flowers. So you're not doing anything negative, but there are three or four possible positives that can come from you enjoying stuffed squash blossoms early in the season. And if you go online to cooking sites, you'll see dozens of recipes for stuffed squash blossoms. Well, that sounds delicious. And, and, zu- and you've been really, really informative. Oh, yeah. Zucchini and other summer squash, they're the preferred blossoms to use in this. Great. Thank All right. You. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. Good luck next year. And uh, if it does not rain um, as if we should be building an ark next year, one <laughs> inch of rain a week delivered overnight at ground level in one big dose. Get a rain gauge so you're not guessing. If you get an inch of rain during a week, you should not water. People water too much. It's the biggest human cause of plant death. Great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I really appreciate it. Better luck luck next year to all of us. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. One. 833-PBS-WLVT. And if you're as dyslexic as I am, you'll be happy to know that you can just call 833-727-9588 instead of desperately staring at your phone, wondering where those letters have disappeared to. Adriana, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hello, this is Adriana. Uh, Are you feeling ducky today? I am feeling doubly ducky <laughs> today, Adriana. Where are you feeling whatever you're feeling? I'm feeling great, and I'm from Twist, Washington State. Washington State. Are you near Spokane? Um, about three hours west, right where those fire, those um, forest fires have been all summer. Oh, you're to the extreme west of Washington State. Um. Let's see, right in the mountains, right in the North Cascade Mountains. It, it is beautiful up there, but this has been a deadly summer. Yes, it's been rough. It's been rough. All right. Well, what can we do for you? Well, thank you for taking my call. Um, I, I So the other day I was up in our attic space, and I noticed these piles of really fine um, 
dust. Uh oh. And there were little tiny ants crawling in it, and Uh-oh. they look like sugar ants. <laughs> when you have carpenter ants of any kind inside your house, they are a warning signal. You don't need an exterminator. You need a carpenter or somebody who works in construction because you have a moisture problem that is rotting some of the wood in your house. You say they're up in the attic. The attic may be trapping moisture. It may need to be vented. It may need to have a fan dropped in. So in in many ways, these are good guys because they're warning you that you have a problem. Now, are they outside as well? Um, I have, well, I think we had lots of sugar ants um, following aphids this summer. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I, I don't see anything outside. I just see these little piles inside. Okay. So here's, here's what we do. We have somebody examine the wood that has holes in it. That's a can of corn. And trace the moisture problem. Uh, solve the moisture problem. There may be a broken gutter, a central air conditioner may be leaking, something like that, leaky pipe somewhere up there. You get rid of the moisture problem, you replace the bad wood, and then you have to encourage the ants to destroy their own nest. And all ants are social animals. They have a nest somewhere, which could be, probably is not in your house, It's probably outside your house, and there's a queen out there pumping out workers. So you can kill all the workers you want until we get rid of the queen. It's like the old Aliens movies. Until you get rid of the queen, Sigourney Weaver is going to be running around that ship nonstop. Boric acid is totally non-toxic to humans, but it's toxic to ants. If you put out a sugary bait that has, let's say, 5% um, boric acid in it. As soon as the workers eat that bait, they drop over dead. They get the little X's over their eyes and everything. But if you make that bait one half of 1% boric acid, it doesn't affect the worker ants right away. They take some of that bait back. They feed it to their fellow ants. It makes its way up to the queen. And the poison is so slow acting at this dose that it's a solid week before that first ant, let's call him Merv, uh, goes, hey, I don't feel too good. And then he gets the X's on his eyes. But by then, it's too late. The boric acid is all through that nest, that colony of thousands of ants. The queen has been fed it over and over again. And as soon as the queen dies, as every woman realizes, men without a woman to lead them are totally helpless. They just stagger around. They don't know what to do. And then everybody gets little X's over their eyes. And you took care of a problem that can only get worse and more expensive. It's, they're almost like seeing eye dogs. If you see carpenter ants and you see this kind of sawdust in your house, you should kiss them on the lips because this moisture problem is not going to get any better on its own. It's going to turn to rot. And the longer it goes untreated, the more expensive it's going to be. This is so great. Thank you. Oh, it's a very important topic, and I love when I can stop people from getting their house sprayed for no reason because it wouldn't have helped. And you've helped quite a few other people by talking to me about it. Well, I also want to tell you, we've been listening, my husband and I, to your gardening show, and it has inspired us to have, I mean, our garden is incredible, our yard. (laughs) Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Call back anytime. All right. You take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. As promised, it is time for the question of the week, which we are calling, What Can We Do About Out-of-Season Bloom? In an email with the subject line, Accidental Late End or Reflowering of Milkweed, Lilacs, and Buckeye, Deb in Troy, Ohio, which she says is just north of Dayton, writes, we had a heavy rain about a week and a half ago, which somehow shot new life back into some of my plants. While they should be dying back, they all of a sudden have new growth in the form of buds on the trees and new shoots emerging from the ground, from the butterfly milkweed. Will this harm my plants? What should I do to ensure good growth in the spring when this normally would be happening? Or are my plants doomed? 
Well, if they are doomed, they're joined by a vast chorus of plants, both loved and unloved, that have been acting wacky over the past several years over many USDA growing zones, displaying a characteristic that trained horticulturists <clears throat> displaying a characteristic that trained horticulturalists like to professionally call bat poop crazy. Because whether due to global warming, climate change, or an unwanted dimensional opening to the bizarro world, all bets are off. In my little town, where the garlic is strong, the tomatoes are good-looking, and all the salad greens are above average, we are now experiencing the third run of Japanese honeysuckle in bloom. Yes, I said third. Yes, that is two more than normal. But normal seems to have given up and taken a job that shortly will make a fortune selling ice cubes to Eskimos. Tangent. Yes, I know I am a horticultural criminal for allowing the alien invasive Japanese honeysuckle to sprawl over a portion of the fence in my backyard. Come and get me coppers. That wonderful scent that once infused the air for a few weeks in the summer and now makes more comebacks than sure is a true joy, now joys, of the season. And it, quote, shares a fence with other vines that I attack daily with flame hands, pruners, and the legion of friends who like pulling weeds. I'm talking poison ivy and Virginia creeper, which are both invasive, but no. <clears throat> I'm talking poison ivy and Virginia creeper, which are both invasive, but they're also both Native American plants, so who knows which side of the scorecard they fall on. Plus, wild grape and a triffid-like vine I call wild wisteria that reaches up into the trees to strangle them to death but doesn't even have the decency to flower. Now, these not-so-fantastic four, I'm on like a dog on a bone, constantly cutting them back and calling them bad names. And yet they persist, stronger by a huge factor than the honeysuckle. Why? Well, the same reason that Deb's plants are misbehaving in Ohio. Whether we are in the grip of climate change, global warming, or just plain bad luck, experts agree that the conditions over the next few decades greatly factor the growth and survival of vining plants over shrubs, trees, and non-climbing plants. And they favor mean, nasty vines over nice and good and decent ones. And that brings us to the spring bloomers being confused this fall. My lilac, for the first time in its long life, seems to be behaving. And yes, and I know I just threw a Kinahara into the ring, but I really like the flowers, even if they choose to now show up in December. But my other plants are just as mad crazy as Deb's. My forsythia is beginning to bloom again, and my roses, instead of going dormant like they should, have decided to produce new flowers in October. What should we do when things like this and Deb's new growth occur? It's the hardest thing for gardeners to do, and that is nothing. As in binge watch Antiques Roadshow and all those nostalgic and somewhat historically correct shows about British aristocracy, or the baseball playoffs, or take up woodworking, because if you mess with these confused plants, you're only going to make things worse. Let's say you decide that pruning off the new growth will save your plants. Newsflash, pruning stimulates new growth, so your plants will have even more lush new growth to suffer winter injury when the temps fall below freezing, which will happen exactly 10 days after you prune them. Fertilizer? Good idea. Let's stimulate even more new growth to freeze and perhaps induce the plant to avoid dormancy until even later in the season, which will by then be winter. At least somewhere it will be. No, this is where we need to step back and trust the plants. Here's what's happening. It was very warm for a long time, and then it got, quote, cold for a while, which may only mean a 20 degree or so drop, but it lasted long enough that the plants thought it was a shorty winter. And then it warmed up. They think it's spring. And we have, as we did when our children were small, things we love but that won't go to sleep. Unlike those children, we can't claim that the plants are having an allergy attack and give them some Benadryl so that we can get a good night's sleep. But sleep well, you should. I have seen my forsythia in full Elton John bloom in the fall and then flower nicely again in the spring. This is a brave new world, gardeners. Sit on your pruners, 
pack away your fertilizers, and hope for the best. Well, that sure was some easy advice to follow about confused plants. Now, wasn't it, Robbie? Whoa, woke you up there, didn't we, boy? Luckily for you, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over in detail, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Or heck, go right to Gardens Alive if that's your idea of a good time. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to prune my persimmons if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 1-833-PBSWLVT. That's 1-833-727-9588. Or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at garden at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please include your location as we really do want to know it. You will find all this new contact info at our website, youbetyourgarden.org, where you'll also find the answers to all your garden questions, audio of this show, and our podcast. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our engineer is Charlie, who wisely will not reveal his last name. Our social media director is Amanda McGrath. Check out her fine work and stay current with what's happening with the show every day at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our website wonder is Anastasia Weckerly. Jazzy Jonas Bowen is our editor. Our director is Javier Diaz. Regal Ron Rush is our director of underwriting. Our marketing madman is Jim McDonald. Affable Andy Cummins makes all the equipment work. And our CEO, Tim Fallon, is assisting the authorities with their inquiries. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. It's been a wild ride from the streets of Philly to the blast furnaces of Bethlehem, but it already feels like home to me. So whether you're listening on broadcast radio or podcast, watching us on TV Saturday mornings on Channel 39, or connecting via Kinescope, I'm happy to say that I will see you again next week.